Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen here with Real Clear Defense editor David Craig. Today we take a look at Taliban opposition forces in the Panjshir Valley. In 1992, following the defeat of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, a loose alliance of Mujahideen militias assaulted Kabul, toppling the communist government. One of those militias was led by the charismatic commander, Ahmad Shah Massoud, the Lion of the Panjshir. Massoud's Tajik forces joined with Uzbek and Hazara factions to form the Northern Alliance. Massoud's home and nearly impenetrable fortress was the Panjshir Valley, roughly 70 miles north of Kabul, from which he defied repeated assaults by the Soviets and then later the Taliban in the civil war that followed the communist collapse. During the rise of the Taliban in the 1990s, Massoud became the eyes and ears for Western intelligence, prophetically warning about the rise of foreign fighters that later became Al-Qaeda. Ultimately, he was assassinated by Al-Qaeda just two days before the September 11th attacks on the U.S. But Massoud's Northern Alliance proved essential in early U.S. victories over the Taliban. Twenty years later, in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the rapid collapse of the Afghan National Army, some Afghans are still resisting the Taliban takeover. One of those groups is led by Massoud's 32-year-old son, Ahmad Massoud, who has returned to the Panjshir Valley that proved so defensible for his father. Calling themselves the National Resistance Front, or NRF, the small group of Tajiks and former ANA commandos have vowed to oppose the Taliban and even claim to have recently secured three districts neighboring the Panjshir. Massoud has called on the Taliban to hold peaceful negotiations, but early talks between NRF and Taliban representatives in Pakistan appeared to have stalled. We are joined today by Kamal Alam, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's South Asia Center. He is also currently an advisor and representative of the Massoud Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to preserving the legacy of Ahmad Shah Massoud. Kamal Alam, welcome to Hot Wash. Thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Pleasure to be here. You were just in Afghanistan. How long ago were you there? What were conditions like on the ground? Uh, I was there just over a week ago when I got out. Uh, Panjshir itself was very uh, safe and calm, an island of stability. Kabul, as I said, just even 48 hours before the fall, was it was quite surreal. No one expected it to fall. We were literally, I was sitting with Ahmed in his garden and uh, uh, having tea and discussing, you know, the future. We knew the Taliban is at the gates of Kabul, but we never thought it would fall so rapidly because one, they had promised they would not enter militarily. And two, despite all the failures of President Ghani, we didn't expect him to literally flee like a rat uh, is what he did. Uh, and then, of course, uh, once Kabul fell, uh, the city was relatively safe, but the airport security deteriorated after two days. And uh, and that's, you know, getting out I got out through Pakistan and the flights, uh, the Qatar, the Qataris, Turks and Pakistanis were still running flights normally, whilst, of course, everything else had become extremely chaotic. So on the U.S. side, there's been constant discussions back and forth of no one expected the ANA to collapse this quickly. It sounds like that was the same uh, on your side um, from uh, hearing from Masood. Did anyone expect the, the collapse to be this rapid? I think the issue was that uh, President Ghani had become a very unpopular president. Uh, and almost everyone knew that the ANA wouldn't fight because there was no, it wasn't about ANA as an institution. 
It was more about we don't want to fight for this system. And I think this has been repeated a number of times over the last few days and, in, in fact, years about the corruption in the ANA and the president's presidency. In the last few weeks and months, no one was willing to fight. And as far as Masood and the Panshiris go, you, Ahmad had been saying for one year consistently, publicly, that this is an ethnically devi- divisive president who is only supporting the Pashtuns and people would rather not fight uh, and go back to the villages, live to fight another day, basically. And this became more and more evident as provinces started falling. No one even put up a fight because Ashraf Ghani and his cronies were handing out cash to the governors and they were doing deals. There are even videos out there, for example, Ghazni province, uh, of Do, doing deals with the advancing Taliban. Yeah, with the advancing Taliban. It's the classic, you know, Afghan way of war where you switch sides for dollars. And in this current fall, you were switching sides for SUVs. Because now, if you don't have hard cash, you have armored cars, you know, depending on how much money you have as a governor or a local commander, you could have 20, 30 armored cars, which could total, you know, a couple of million dollars all American taxpayers' money, which is the tragedy, I guess, from an American perspective, that you have American blood and treasure being traded by corrupt Afghan leaders. So from that perspective, the ANA wouldn't fight. Some units fought. The Afghan Special Forces, which I think uh, is the best success of uh, the U.S. military uh, directly working with Tampa and Special Operations Command, they were the best fighters. And actually, a lot of them are now in Panjshir, uh, joining Ahmed uh, to fight uh, against the Taliban. But they were not going to hold on to the village and district when they saw the political leaders fleeing abroad with all the cash in their hand. How did you originally become connected with Masood? Uh, we were family friends. Our fathers uh, and uncles were friends. And then I spent almost 10 years with Ahmed in, in the UK uh, when he was studying there, first at Sanders or then at King's College. So so yeah, we're family friends and, you know, we spent a lot of time in England. Uh, and then we've been, I've been helping him on his humanitarian efforts and also a few political outreach to the UK, US and regional countries like Pakistan. So tell us what he's like as an individual. I mean, you mentioned that he went to the uh, British Military Academy, Sanders, and did war studies at King's College. Uh, he's relatively young. He's, he's 32, uh, you know. Often his uh, his namesake Ahmad Masood is invoked as you know this incredibly charismatic figure in uh, a- Afghan history. What is he like, and do you think that that uh, age and relative lack of combat experience is going to make it challenging for him to to rally people to his cause? Yeah, so you know, as you say, he's uh, he he doesn't have the combat experience of his father. Uh, yes, he's uh, he's been to the military academy and he studied war. But of course, you know, unlike his dad, who was bloodied in war as a teenager all the way he grew up in war. Ahmed doesn't have the same combat experience. But one thing he has done upon completing his studies in the UK four years ago is he moved back to Panjshir and went local. What I mean by going local is he worked at the grassroots level, starting purely on the humanitarian side. And this goes back to my earlier point that the Kabul centralized government never cared about far-flung areas, whether it's Panjshir in the north or even, let's say, Herat in the west or even Helmand and Kandahar in the south. So Ahmed's plan had become, I want to serve the people. 
Uh, and that's what he did. He built a link to his constituency. Uh, of course, ha- has the same charisma, looks like his father. Uh, and like his father, also is a bit of a philosopher and poet, you know, uh, and loves astronomy. A very good footballer, you know. If, if if there was peace, he could have been a professional footballer or, you know, soccer player, as you would say, in the US. Uh, so that's what he did. He built links to the people. And the people of Panjshir who are, you know, remote, uh, very mountainous terrain, they had gotten sick of not just Ashraf Ghani, but the other Panjshiri leaders who had enriched themselves with millions of dollars were living uh, fancy lifestyles abroad. Whilst Ahmad still lives in a very simple three-bedroom house that his father built, uh, you know, it's far, uh, has doesn't have a luxurious life. And even the video that you saw a couple of days ago of the Taliban entering his office in Kabul, even that's a very basic three-bedroom office that his dad had, not even in their name. So he lived a simple life connecting to the people, building up his base. And this is why you've seen all of his father's commanders who are in the who are anywhere between the age of early 50s to mid 60s they're all under him because they're not with people like Dr Abdullah or even Amrullah Saleh or Bismillah Mohammadi the defense minister Ahmad at the young age already has the political backing of his father's veterans uh he doesn't have as a the military experience but he has the wisdom and the humility humility is extremely important here he's very humble as I said, lives in the simple house that his dad built. Even when his dad was assassinated, he didn't leave behind uh, any millions for him or his his sisters. So that's what attracts the people to him, uh, that he has grounded himself in Panjshir. He wasn't even part of the Kabul elite. I can tell you that Ashraf Ghani, the former president, and Dr. Abdullah, the former head of the Peace Council, offered Ahmad to be minister. They said, you can, you, you can have whatever you want. Ahmed said, no, I will remain in Panjshir with my people, which is similar to what his dad did. His dad was the only Mujahideen commander who didn't go to Pakistan or Iran, but he fought and eventually died, even though he was isolated with very little support from the outside world. And that's what Ahmed is doing now. He has the connection and the support of the people. You mentioned uh, former Vice President Amrullah Saleh. He also is there in Panjshir Valley. What's the relationship between uh, the NRF and Amrullah Saleh? He's he's declared himself the caretaker president after Ghani's departure. Uh, What is that relationship like? So Saleh, of course, uh, was close to his uh, father. uh, And Saleh had built up this massive security role for himself post 9-11. So uh, people respect Saleh. He's a good friend of uh, the Masood family, of course, but there is no logistical or political cooperation as such because Saleh is someone who had joined Ashraf Ghani. And as I mentioned, Ghani was seen as a criminally corrupt politician who was also an ethnic, a divisive figure who, who supported Pashtuns. And when Saleh joined Ghani's team, he lost a lot of respect from the Tajik community because, as I mentioned before, that none of the self-respecting Tajiks would have joined Ghani. You know, even President Karzai was far better. In fact, if you compare Karzai to, you know, uh, Ashraf Ghani, it's like, you know, it's, it's a world away, even though Karzai was far from a, you know, a successful statesman. But Saleh joining Ghani was seen as very opportunistic, so he lost a lot of respect. But 
of course, when their backs are against the wall, uh, or in Panjshir's case, in the valleys and the mountains, Saleh will be someone who is welcome, and he is a fighter. Uh, but there is a bit of bad blood because of his relationship and joining Ghani. The ANA was dominated by Pashtuni. The former Northern Alliance was primarily Tajik, uh, Uzbek, and Hazara. Do you see those same kind of ethnic divisions forming the the reorganization of opposition to the Taliban? Yes, uh, it's it's all. Or, or or is it or is ethnicity really the wrong way to think of it? Has it is it is it something that's kind of superimposed by the Western analysis, or is that still? I mean, obviously that was a huge issue in the previous uh, the the negotiated settlement on the, on the uh, presidential election that Ghani ultimately power shared in. But is that is that the right lens to look at it through? Is that going to be an issue going forward? I think yes and no. Without oversimplifying it, uh, you know, just to give you a practical example, yesterday when the Taliban took the Kabul airport, they the, so when you land or take off at Kabul airport, you've got the president of Ghani because he was the president, and then next to him was Masood because Masood was the national hero. The Taliban tore down Mas- all of Masood's portraits and pictures, but they let Ghani there, which again, despite what people might say, Taliban is a Pashtun force, uh, and even though they don't like Ghani, they didn't tear his picture or portrait down, but Masood's portraits now been disappeared from Kabul airport, all of them. So, and this relates to your question that without oversimplifying it, this is an ethnic issue, unfortunately. Uh, even when the Soviet-backed uh, uh, Afghan army broke up, you know, a lot of the Tajik commanders went to Masood's side, the Pashtun commanders went to Hikmatyar's side, Having said that, there are still many Pashtuns who despise the Taliban. And, uh, you know, I, again, there's a divide between urban and rural Pashtuns. You know, the I think the Taliban are kind of the rural Pashtuns, whilst the urban Pashtuns would not support uh, Karzai. Sorry, uh, Taliban. And, and, a, and a real distinction should be made between the former commando forces versus people who are in the re- regular yeah. ANA army at the lower levels. Absolutely. You yeah. know, had very, yeah. you know, very little education, often very, very undersupplied. Yeah. You know, they had local commanders that were skimming supplies and, and not paying them. For example, uh, the, the commandos Absolutely. was, it's almost like a completely separate fighting force. Um, Let's 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 talk about the tactical situation for a moment. Um, David, you were in Helmand. Do you did you go to Panjshir or did you did you have any experience up there? I'm just curious what you know what the describe for us what the actual environment is like. We've heard all these kind of cliches of it's in it's impenetrable and you know it's a high narrow valley with one road in one road out. Um, you know, describe for us what the what the physical geographic situation is like there. Um, David, David, did you have experience over there? No, I I was just in Helmand the whole time. I mean, I studied Masood and the train to some extent as well, but not not to the tactical extent that we see now. Basically, he's been using to his advantage actually to prevent the Taliban from doing too much. You know, I think I sent you a video that they fought very bravely already. And Kamal, that's something I'd be interested in. How much of the former A and A do they have? They've done extremely well thus far. And are they building the coalition out further, like with the Hazaras, as they did in the past? Yes, I, I, from from the ANA, I think the, the commanders and soldiers that were able to get out of their areas and get into Panjshir before the Taliban cordoned it off, I would say that there are a few thousand. So not in a big number, but in the low, uh, 
approximately, I would say, no more than a couple of thousand, uh, of which quite a few are the special forces, which are ethnically diverse. They're not just Panjshiris or Tajiks. And yes, I think overall, uh, Ahmad is in touch with Dostum, the Uzbeks, and with the Hazaras as well, and in some Pashtuns as well. Uh, you know, the ones, as I mentioned, that the Pashtuns that do not want to see a Taliban-dominated Afghanistan. And just two weeks ago, there was a delegation in Islamabad, Pakistan, which included Ahmad's two uncles, Zia Masood, Wali Masood, included the two Hazara leaders, Muhakkik and Khalili, and the former foreign minister, Salahuddin Rabbani. So they'd gone over to Pakistan to discuss uh, potential mediation with the Taliban, given Pakistan's influence over the Taliban. So yes, uh, Ahmad and the National Resistance Forces are already linking up and are in touch with the other forces. The only practical and tactical issue being that no one has any ground. So apart from Panjshir, Dostum already fled. He's in Uzbekistan. In fact, he's in Turkey now. Uh, Atanur fled. He's in Uzbekistan. Ismail Khan has been allowed to go to Iran, I believe. The Taliban allowed him to leave. So, so the other commanders have no battle, let's say, grounds to command unless uh, offensive forces launch from Panjshir and then they can join from the north, i.e. Uzbekistan or Turkmenistan. So I want to return to the discussion of those uh, talks in, in Pakistan, but just uh, staying with the what's happening on the ground. Do you have any more recent information? And there's some reports, you know, seven Taliban forces were killed. You know, some say three districts uh, neighboring Panjshir have been secured by Masood's forces. Uh, the Taliban claims to have taken them back. Uh, do you have any more information of just what's the situation on the ground in terms of contact between Taliban forces and Masood's? So there is daily contact. So what the Taliban are doing, and I'm in touch with Ahmed every few hours, they negotiate during the day. So their Taliban representatives have been meeting Ahmed's representatives, both in Panjshir and in Kabul, to discuss the ceasefire, to discuss the formation of an inclusive government. But as soon as nightfall comes, the Taliban start attacking, you know, which is classic Taliban of, you know, uh, they don't really honor negotiations or peace talks. They attacked Last night from the south in Parwan province, also from Andhrab province, there was heavy fighting, casualties on both sides. I would say roughly a dozen uh, dozen on the NRS uh, side and probably a couple of dozen on the Taliban side, although that's not confirmed. So yes, there is contact. And the, the last three nights, there's been a similar pattern. The Taliban cut off the phone networks and the internet uh, from because they have the surrounding areas. They can cut off. Uh, when they want, and then they attack. Then they go back to negotiation and they're blackmailing Ahmed and the negotiators and saying, if you don't accept our terms, we will attack you at night. And this is exactly the same pattern that has repeated itself for the last 72 hours. So let's talk about the diplomatic efforts that are going on. Masood wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, both asking for Western support, uh, but also, you know, I, I watched an interview that you did with him while you were there in Afghanistan, and he's articulating a call for reconciliation, really. He's he's asking for, uh, you know, limited self-autonomy for some of the regions. Can you just talk about what is his diplomatic strategy uh, so far with the Taliban and what is, what is he trying to negotiate? So you know, just to uh, set uh, in context, the Taliban and 
Masood have been talking for over a year. The leader of the Taliban, Hebetullah, and Mullah Omar's son, Mullah Yaqub, who's a military commander, have been writing letters to Ahmad for a year and vice versa. And their, their representatives first met in Peshawar, Pakistan, six months ago. Then they met in Tajikistan. And then in the last two weeks, they've met in Kabul and Panjshir. Ahmad's strategy has always been, we must give peace every chance. And as you saw in the Atlantic interview, he's on record as saying, I'm ready to forgive the blood of my father for working and negotiating and talking with the Taliban. And it's important here because I'm privy to at least two of the meetings here. Uh, this is exactly like 96. Ahmad Shah Massoud went unarmed without any bodyguards to negotiate with the Taliban. He said, you know, you talk of Islam, I'm a Muslim, and, you know, let's negotiate this. But, you know, they, they, they sat for two hours, sorry, two days, discussed, but eventually Masood realized that the Taliban are in no mood to reconcile. They just want to forcibly take over their version of extremist Islam and, and and come over. Same thing is happening now after 25 years that, uh, that the Taliban are talking. Ahmad is like, I can, you can even come in Panjshir. That can even be a smooth transition, but not, we will not surrender and we will not have your kind of extremist Islam, which includes being in bed with terrorists of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And this is important because even in the last two days, uh, We've seen video of one of Osama bin Laden's top henchmen returning to Nangahar, Amin al-Haq, who was actually chief of security for bin Laden for many years. So you see, this is something which was part of the negotiation that you're, if Taliban is Afghan and Ahmad is Afghan, we can work with each other. But if you're going to have international terrorists, I mean, the head of the Taliban has already met Hamas. You know, Hamas is uh, jubilating. In Idlib, you have these terrorists, the Syrian jihadis, they're celebrating. So it's very, this is a deja vu again. Just like Ahmad Shah Massoud said, I will work with the Taliban, but I will not work with these terrorists who've come from all over the world to fight in Afghanistan. And the same thing is happening now. So Ahmad is still willing, even as we speak, there is a hotline open between Anas Haqqani, who is the number two of the Haqqanis in Kabul, and Ahmad. And they're saying, so they're talking. And Ahmad is like, look, I can form a government with you. But the main thing is that uh, you must not enforce by the barrel of a gun and we will not allow military force into Panjshir. You can send even a Taliban representative to be a governor, but at no cost will we allow weapons to come here. And we will fight if you do not uh, agree to negotiations. So does he have any leverage or any, uh, I mean, it, his negotiation position is essentially being holed up, sieged in a, in a castle and uh, hoping to what make it through to the winter. I, I mean, how long can he last surrounded in that manner? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you know, we're low on arms and ammunition. Obviously the Taliban have this, you know, billions of dollars worth of U S weapons in addition to what they've been supplied to by the regional countries, uh, Panjshir weapons are running low. I think can easily fight for at least a couple of months. And, you know, as you know, the winter is only six weeks away. And once the winter comes, the Taliban can't enter because of the passes. Uh, so tactically speaking, I think the part already in the last three nights, uh, 
the Taliban forces have been pushed back immediately as they attacked. But of course, the real Taliban offensive hasn't begun. There seems to be some kind of recce Taliban special forces testing the defenses. I think once the Taliban launch a full-on offensive from all four sides, it will be a test of the resistance forces. But as I said, uh, as of yet, no country in the world is helping Massoud. Uh, just like his father, he's alone. Uh, I think there are U.S. senators and congressmen who've been publicly saying we should support. I think a lot of veterans, I personally know many U.S. veterans who've reached out to me and said, you know, we want to help Ahmed. But of course, you know, uh, a, a single congressman or senator can't help. You've got the U.S. government uh, and we don't know exactly what the future holds for U.S. policy in Afghanistan. But tactically speaking, you ask about leverage. The only leverage Ahmed has now is that the Taliban want international recognition. You know, within a few weeks, there will be not a single penny left in the Afghan banks. Already the ATMs are running dry. The $9 billion reserves has been frozen. The American and European pressure right now is that if the Taliban want Western money, because we know 99% of the budget is run by the West and tax and aid, they need an inclusive government. And that inclusive government starts with Ahmed or other Tajik leaders, Hazaras, and Uzbeks. So that's the only leverage, which is if the Taliban want international recognition, they need to work with moderate leaders like Ahmed, who do not want a radical Islamic government. And as you said, no outside country has offered support yet. How would they even reach him? Would would it be possible to airdrop supplies? I, I mean, once the once we get into the winter, doesn't that also just make delivering any uh, physical support to him extremely difficult as well? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the the only way to airdrop it is through Tajikistan, uh, which is roughly you know uh, between fifty minutes helicopter journey, or Pakistan. You know, but of course, we Pakistan being on the other side of the conflict, uh, it'll be so Tajikistan becomes the only logistical route possible for airdrops. And very soon, as I said, if this becomes into a full-blown conflict and the Taliban cut the supply lines and lay siege, then, of course, you have a humanitarian crisis. We're already in touch with the World Food Program and various UN agencies for the worst-case scenario. Uh, but as of yet, no no country is obviously uh, set up to support uh, the resistance. Are you hearing about any other pockets of resistance outside of Panjshir? Uh, there was a report from the BBC that former Army Chief of Staff Yasin Zia, who, who was also an aide to Masood's father, I think you actually mentioned him earlier, is leading some resistance yeah. efforts. Are you hearing about, are there any other areas that they could link up with or other forces that that might be drawn to the Panjshir to supplement their their uh, their forces? So I think, yes, the, especially in the neighboring provinces like Andhrab province, Badakhshan, which borders Tajikistan and China, and then Parwan, there are resistance forces. In fact, the three districts that were taken back were taken on the neighboring provinces, not actually Panjshir. I think if a full-on offensive starts, then we will see other forces joining in. Uh, I think it will be a logistical issue, given the mountains and the passes, and the Taliban will blow up the bridges and the roads leading up to the mountains. So the coordination of the resistance might be tough. And this is where the Uzbek forces might be important. If Abdul Rashid Dostum, you know, is backed by the Turks, can come into the theater from the north, 
and Shibergan and Zhaojun, that could be a game changer. And as you know, he was the main guy who helped uh, U.S. Special Forces overthrow the Taliban right after 9-11. And, you know, people ask me, and as I said, these U.S. veterans or other Americans reaching out, all America needs is a few dozen special forces on the ground. The hype of the Taliban military superiority is, that's all there is, hype. Even now with limited U.S. air power and a few dozen U.S. special forces, the Taliban can be blown away. And that's what happened, if you remember, in 9-11. Within five weeks, the Taliban went. You had U.S. firepower, a few dozen, and then a few hundred U.S. special forces with Northern Alliance, with Ahmed's father's veterans, you know. Specifically air power, specifically air controllers coordinating air power. Exactly. Yeah. And and that's that's what's needed. And this is why I think there is a disbelief that how on earth did President Biden announce that we should leave Bagram Air Base, you know, the, all the military planners were like, wait, you can't leave the air base now because that's the one strategic advantage you can have, even for counterterrorism operations. This is not about nation building anymore. This is about counterterrorism uh, and fighting the bad guys. Uh, let's pivot to counterterrorism for a moment. Your background is also in Syria, Iraq, Pakistan. Um, what are you hearing about the rise of ISK, of course, the uh, group that we think is responsible for the bombing at the gates outside of Kabul airport. Uh, they launched some failed mortar attacks or rocket attacks that were shot down by the cram around the airport. What is your understanding of the capabilities there and, and what are you hearing from the ground? I think already we've seen uh, that uh, there, there is coordination between, and this is not new. This has been happening over the last couple of years once it became apparent that uh, you know uh, the Doha deal is being signed. And it's very important. I mentioned Doha because, of course, uh, Qatar has been instrumental in supporting Hamas and the jihadis in Syria. And this is why Hamas and the Syrian jihadis are the first to be cheerleading for Taliban. They've publicly congratulated the Taliban. And in Idlib, all these forces are like, this is what we need to have a regional revolution. And there have been fighters coming in from Syria and Iraq already over the last 12 to 18 months. And then ISIS, Khorasan... Look, I think ISIS Khorasan is a regional, it's like a franchise, you know, if you've got a Burger King, or I don't know where the first, let's say the first Burger King came in Atlanta, Georgia, and someone in Tampa, Florida said, oh, right, I want to open a Burger King here as well. So simply, the same thing is happening here. If you if you look at the trajectory of the war on terror, before uh, the US forces pulled out of Iraq, Pakistan-Afghanistan border was the center of the war on terror. But then they started shifting towards Iraq and Syria. Now they will begin to converge back into Afghanistan. Uh, and because Afghanistan has the mythical status of where jihad was born in the 80s, and then, of course, 90s when bin Laden announced al-Qaeda. So even the Arab fighters, and, you know, almost all the Arab Islamic movements took birth in Afghanistan, you know. If you look, even look at the Algerian civil war, these were veterans of Afghanistan that returned to Algeria. Even the former Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat, he was assassinated by a former Egyptian officer who had, whose family were all in the Afghan war. So I think the connection will grow. This is also a big fillet to Iran. Let's not forget the current head of IRGC, Ismail Khani, is a veteran of the Afghan wars. While Soleimani was busy dealing with the Syria file, Khani 
who is fluent in Pashto, Dari, and Urdu, was busy planning the Afghan theater for the Iranians. And as we know, the Iranians who had sheltered bin Laden's family as well, and had actually helped, you know, the Iranians played both the sides, the Sunni and the Shia jihadis. So again, we've seen a shift of Iranian support to Taliban, whilst previously they were mortal enemies. Now, of course, Iran is fully in bed with the Taliban, and it's public knowledge the Taliban had visited Tehran twice this year. So this is going to become a pivot again. ISK, I think the brand or organization doesn't matter because there are almost going to be many dozens of terrorist groups popping up. You have the Central Asians, you know, Uzbek, Jihadis, Tajiks, the former uh, groups from Chechnya. And let's not right. forget when Chechnya declared independence in the mid-90s, uh, just before Putin actually came in, uh, the first government to recognize the Chechen and Dagestanis was Taliban. So we've got these decades-old links between Russians, former Russian-speaking states with the Taliban and, of course, all these jihadi groups in Arab countries. But the, the significance of al-Qaeda was the shift from the regional conflicts that, you know, between the Pakistan and, and the TTP and, and then the Taliban and, and you know, uh, the other ISI-sponsored organizations uh, essentially trying to destabilize India or, or the Iranians, you know, trying to influence the, the region as well. They, those were all kind of regional terror groups. Al-Qaeda was the first to really say, no, we're going to project this well beyond the re region. Uh, do you see... Most of the other, as you mentioned, I mean, there's a whole cast of characters of uh, non-state actors that certainly wish ill. Do you see those again pivoting outside of the region or are these primarily, you know, regional battles uh, between between the players kind of surrounding Afghanistan? Afghanistan is kind of essentially the, the crossroads of, of all those forces. I think, yes, that's a good point you raise, uh, especially with regards to the regional battles, whether it's the TTP, Pakistan, or the groups that were fighting the Uzbek government or the Chinese government in the 90s. Uh, I think at the moment it remains regional, and it's still early to see how far Al-Qaeda can exploit the way they did in the 90s. Right. But the only leverage Al-Qaeda Al has now, as compared to, let's say, 98 or 99, is they've got this pocket in northwest Syria, Idlib, which is, you know, basically Al-Qaeda affiliates. You've got Al-Qaeda Al affiliates in Libya, Somalia. So, yes, Al-Qaeda is much more weakened in South Asia, but they've got these linkages which weren't there now. Oh, sorry, previously. And I think, let's see, especially already Hamas is celebrating and uh, Syrians, are, so Syrian jihadis are celebrating. So can there, and the Qatar link is important because the Qatari foreign minister said yesterday, we will be the conduit for international community to reach out to the Taliban. Well, you know, that good luck with that, because we know what the Qatari conduit did in Syria and Libya and other countries. Uh, and I'm I know the Saudis in the UAE are very worried about the Qatari link to the Taliban and the other groups, although it's too early. So there's no point exaggerating the threat yet. However, all the all the bullet points are there, you know. How right. Al-Qaeda can connect them again, we don't know yet. How serious the Taliban is to be a new reformed Taliban is yet to be seen. Yeah, and it's a it's it's a familiar song. So obviously 
ignoring those linkages and the and growing strength is would be a huge mistake. I, just take a second. Yeah. I, I genuinely don't understand the Qatari position. Uh, they're a huge base for U.S. operations. Uh, they they're playing both sides. It's not like they're Switzerland. They're 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 actively invested in things that the you know go contrary to U.S. foreign policy. At the same time, uh, supporting us. You know, both uh, in terms of uh, you know giving us a, a a a place to to launch a lot of our efforts from. Do you, can you try and make sense? Of, you know, square that circle. What what is the the agenda for the Qataris in in supporting those seemingly disparate aims? Yeah, that's I mean, that's a good point in terms of this confusion as well as you said that they're a vital U.S. ally in terms of the air base and providing support onto diplomatic missions of the U.S. I think the way even the Taliban office in Doha began was literally, I think they were asked, would they facilitate? And they said, yes. I mean, I personally know that in Kabul, the Serena Hotel, the only five-star hotel, half of it, half of it was occupied by these Qatari diplomats. And they, they literally had SUVs of cash that they were taking out to various uh, warlords and Taliban commanders. They were act, not just acting as an honest peace broker, but they had basically started taking sides, starting off a very benign political office in Doha. They then became, right, we can civilize the Taliban is what their mantra is, that we will make them moderate Muslims, whatever that means, given what Hamas or the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt are like, who are also funded and supported by Qatar. So it's yet to be seen. And as we know, the Saudis and the UAE and the Egyptians have a very serious allegation and concerns against Qatar, although now the Saudis and the UAE are talking to Qatar again and are trying to reduce tensions. I think the trust is missing. And this is something we've seen in Syria and Libya, that Qatar backed the worst groups in Syria and Libya. And we've seen a repeat of this performance in Libya, in Syria, and now in Afghanistan as well, that they started off as a benign diplomatic mission, telling the U.S. we want to help you bring peace. But then very soon, evidence suggests that it's somehow all the worst groups in all these countries turn out to be Qatar's friends and they have offices in Doha. So either it's blissful ignorance or it's some kind of, uh, you know, maligned uh, Machiavellian tactic to bring a particular Islamist agenda into all these Muslim countries, because all of them certainly have groups to cut uh, links to Qatar. Uh, so Qatar definitely, if they are going to play a positive role, as I said yesterday, the Qatari foreign minister said, we will effectively act as the conduit to the Western world. So let's see then if they can if they can moderate Taliban, then great. That means we should trust Qatar. But it's too early to know that, and certainly uh, the history doesn't suggest that given what happened in Syria and Libya. Well, let's try and wrap up what is an incredibly complicated situation, obviously for the Afghan people, for uh, Masood's people in the Punjab Valley, we're, we're looking at some real human crises there. Uh, aid dollars are going to run out, uh, supplies. There's already reports of uh, food shortages, uh, medical shortages uh, among the Taliban, asking the international community for support. There's the complicated military situation on the ground. And then there's basically a long list of 
potential problems for the U.S. government. Uh, how should we make sense of the the situation that's happening there in the near term and what we should be looking for over, over the next six months? I think as things stand now, there is, I think it's a big question mark on how the humanitarian angle plays out. We know that food will run out, money will run out since Afghanistan's 100% dependent on either regional countries or international donors for money and food. Uh, as of yet, the Taliban are saying they will they will work openly with all the embassies. Well, all the embassies have left, so good luck. However, the World Food Program, I know David Beasley, uh, uh, you know, the former governor, uh, I think, of North Carolina, or uh, rather south, he has been very active. He's already been out to Pakistan and saying, you know, we will keep our humanitarian efforts running. Uh, but if the fighting starts in Panjshir, from a Panjshiri perspective, food will run out within a month because everything will be choked and there will be a siege. Uh, that's the worst case scenario. I think the best case scenario is a negotiated settlement. And plus, the Taliban still don't have a government. There are no ministers. They have no bureaucrats. They've never run anything in their life. They've been from these uneducated, inverted commas, madrasas in Pakistan. They've been an insurgent group. They've been good at being insurgents. But being government is completely separate and none of no one in the West trusts them. So how are they going to work with them? I think there is a big concern over how they will distribute food, money, and is, are they going to use food as a weapon in the non-Pashtun areas, which is more than 50% of the country? This is where they could weaponize aid and uh, resources. As of yet, no one knows any of this because the Taliban have no government. Well, as the U.S. knows all too well, it is really easy to break things and very difficult to build things. David, what's your takeaway from from this? This has been an interesting discussion with Kamal. What are you focusing on uh, looking at, at the conflict there over the coming months? The one question I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in is after we evicted the Taliban in 2001, what do you think should have been done differently? What do you think would have set up Afghanistan for success in the long run rather as compared to what we actually did. Yeah, I, I think in hand, in hindsight, uh, I think if, if you look at the early few months or even the first year of the Afghan operations and the U.S.-led intervention, it was a success. And that was a light footprint. And I remember in the late Don Rumsfeld and people criticize him, but he was very clear, we shouldn't get into nation building, you know? Uh, and, and I think that's what went wrong, that you had enough, at the time you had trustworthy allies. Of course, no one was perfect, allegations of war crimes, et cetera, on various warlords, but there was optimism that uh, let the locals run things and the international community in the US can help without too much of an overt presence. Once that changed into policing villages of Afghanistan and trying to build, you know, that's where things started going wrong. And I think, and then of course, the massive corruption and the hundreds of billions of dollars and how the local Afghan elite pocketed and benefits whilst the ordinary Afghan suffered. That is the unfortunate summary of this Afghan war. And if I could say one last thing, Ashraf Ghani, who was, you know, had done his PhD at Columbia, was working at think tanks and was writing papers. The biggest failure of this war in Afghanistan 
likes others, but since we're talking about Afghanistan is you have these fancy academics who do their degrees, whether in London, Washington, New York, they write these papers, which are not implementable on the ground. You know, you as a veteran would know that your real-time education in Helmand or Kandahar is far more insightful than a PhD or a master's from Columbia or John Hopkins. And all these, and Ashraf Ghani is the summary of that, writes these fancy papers, becomes the economy minister, finance minister and president, doesn't have a clue how to run Afghanistan. He might be Afghan origin, but his idea of Afghanistan is an academic papers and think tanks in DC and New York. It's not how to run on the ground. And this goes back to, as I said, Ahmad moved to Panjshir and said, I will work with the local people. This is the biggest failure of this war and future wars that we must have ground reality, which is far different to a Ivy League degree or a paper coming out of a think tank in whether it's an Afghan writing or an American writing. So you think that the regional leaders could have held it after they we initially took it back over with yes. a little bit with just a little bit of support, maybe? Yes, and, and and I think that's what had happened, and we'd already seen the Taliban were toppled within a few weeks. In fact, the Taliban was then saying, you know, Hamid Karzai, they were willing to, the moderate Taliban were willing to join the government. And there's a great book by the former CIA director of CDC, Bob Grenier, called 88 Days to Kandahar. And Bob talks about this, that, you know, we had won the war in the beginning, and or the battle, and we lost it. So you could work with the right local leaders without imposing this, as I said, without imposing these fancy theoretical ideas and then bring them on into Afghanistan, into a village which had no concept of, you know, oh, what's a realism degree or how do you make a, how do you make a local government? So, uh, so that's the big failure there. Well, I think the last couple of weeks have been a, a brutal lesson in ground reality for sure. I think we will have to end it there for today. Kamal Alam, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, John and David. Thanks. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military, defense, and national security issues that matter. You can sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For David Craig and everyone here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.